Mornings. It's time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. And there are a number of interesting stories with respect to the law, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and police powers in the news this week. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I, I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Now, I'm the kind of guy who says, let's shut down the entire island. And I know that it would be very difficult to actually do that because we, of course, have due process, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the law. And we it's good that we have those protections because excessive power by the state is a good idea until, of course, it comes back after you. And then suddenly it's a bad idea. What can police do and not do given these proposed restrictions we've been hearing about? Uh, well, uh, they can't do, as a matter of law, what the premier seems to be suggesting they should be doing, and uh, that's a problem. Yeah. Uh, there are other lawful ways to accomplish a similar objective, but what the premier has been saying is that without granting them any additional powers, uh, his expectation is that the uh, police will be conducting uh, check stops uh, to determine whether somebody is moving uh, between health authorities and then presumably fine them uh, if they uh, uh, were doing so. Now, the reason that that uh, seems to uh, indicate a misunderstanding on his part about what the uh, authority of the police is, is uh -huh. that it is true that the police have the authority to stop a, a vehicle uh, in some circumstances. The police are permitted to do so, that is to say, stop a vehicle, uh, to check on things in relation to the vehicle, things like the sobriety of the driver. Does the driver have a driver's license? Do they have insurance? What about the mechanical fitness of a car? That is permitted. But uh, the Supreme Court of Canada has been clear that police do not have an existing authority which would permit them to uh, stop vehicles to venture into investigations of other matters. The police could not, for example, say, hey, we're going to set up a uh, checkpoint out of, outside a music festival to search cars for drugs. That would be not permitted. Hmm. Um, if, you, if the police wish to uh, stop somebody, driving or not, uh, to conduct uh, uh, some sort of an uh, uh, investigative detention into something other than those motor vehicle-related matters, the police officer needs to have reasonable grounds to suspect that the individual is connected to a particular criminal activity and that such a detention is reasonably necessary in the circumstances. You cannot set up, the police cannot lawfully set up uh, roadblocks uh, in order to uh, do things unrelated to uh, the investigation of things like the motor vehicle related matters, sobriety and so forth. That is permitted, but they're not permitted to do other things. Mm -hmm. And so... If the police were to do what the premier seems to think they can do here, uh, there would be a very high probability that um, any uh, statement or admission that police got from somebody uh, in that context, for example, if they were to stop everyone and say, where are you going? Why are you leaving your health authority? What is your purpose? Uh, you know, show me your papers. Uh, there is a very high probability that the, any statement they were to get from somebody would be found to be inadmissible because the police do not have a general authority to stop you to try to inquire into whether you're generally committing a crime, uh, whether you've got uh, uh, drugs in your trunk. They're not permitted to do that. Uh, we have uh, in Canada constitutional protection to be free from arbitrary detention, and it simply doesn't permit that. Moreover, 
the premier doesn't seem to appreciate the fact that the provincial government doesn't have the authority to order the police to go and do this. Uh, the, they're not the army. Uh, the, uh, they are to act independently. Uh, and occasionally, of course, they wind up, the police, that is, wind up doing things like investigating politicians. It's good and important that they not be uh, operating uh, at the direction uh, of uh, provincial uh, politicians, and they do not. Uh, and so, uh, as we've heard, you've already got uh, police uh, agencies pushing back saying, we're not interested in doing this. Mm-hmm. Now, on that front, I should say, the provincial government has also not provided vaccine to the police. There Good was point. Supposed Great to be, point. That was supposed to be provided as part of uh, sort of the frontline workers, but they stopped that. Hmm. And so... Asking police to, in an unvaccinated state, stop cars randomly to oh, of course. Uh, conduct inquiries into this, you, you may be setting up a super spreader event uh, unintentionally. Huh, uh, I hadn't even thought of that. Viable. Yeah. So, in my view, uh, not only does this appear to be un- unlawful, uh, not only would there be serious problems with respect to trying to prosecute uh, somebody on the basis of admissions you extracted by uh, having the police stop them without authority and ask them where they're going, you may be putting both the drivers and the police officers in jeopardy asking them to do that. And so you, you may well find, the, prom- the Premier may well find, the response from the police is simply, no thanks, uh, we're not interested in doing that. That was, of course, the response in Ontario uh, when the uh, suggestion there, which they backtracked on, was to have uh, police doing that. So... I think they need to perhaps rethink uh, what they are uh, proposing there. And if they do so, uh, there would be uh, alternative ways to accomplish something similar that wouldn't put police in jeopardy and ask them to engage in conduct which may well be unconstitutional and unlawful. Uh, In that regard, the... uh, uh, premier, uh, provincial government, yes. uh, should consider using the Public Health Act, and in particular, Section 23 of the Public Health Act. Uh, that section permits uh, a health officer uh, to stop a person or vehicle uh, or enter a vehicle or place to inspect the vehicle or place for any of the following reasons. And then one of them is to determine if the health hazard exists or likely exists in or on the vehicle or place, or in relation to the activities of the person. So, for example, somebody who's traveling unnecessarily could be spreading COVID-19. That seems to fit squarely there. Uh, and there is authority. You might ask, what is a um, a health officer? Well, indeed, uh, Section 71 of the uh, Public Health Act permits the uh, provincial government, lieutenant governor and council, to designate a person who's a medical practitioner either a doctor, member of the College of Physicians and Surgeons, or somebody else who, in the opinion of the provincial health officer, has sufficient training, knowledge, and skills to exercise the powers and perform the duties of a medical health officer. And so, while it doesn't sound perhaps quite as macho uh, to uh, as it does saying, we're going to have police setting up roadblocks and checking people on the ferries, yes. you could well imagine using these this existing authority to designate uh, somebody for, how about, uh, for example, public health nurses? That might be a, a very important activity. Uh, somebody else with medical training uh, who would be lawfully permitted, if they were properly designated under the Act, uh, to do what they have in mind. They could stop vehicles and make sure that there isn't a 
uh, a health hazard in relation to the person or the vehicle. And so that would be lawfully permitted. Um, and you would not have uh, the concerns about having unvaccinated people ordered to do this. You would not have the same concerns with respect to uh, asking the police to do something they don't have uh, lawful authority to do. And you could accomplish uh, the same uh, objective uh, in, in a way which was lawfully permitted. And huh. so it's fully understandable why they want to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. But the uh, saying we're going to have police do this without any additional authority uh, is not, in my view, an appropriate way to accomplish that. Uh, And they are already getting pushback. There was a letter that was sent to the uh, Premier and the Attorney General and others yesterday by a whole range of groups here, everything from the Civil Liberties Association to the BC Assembly of First Nations, uh, um, a whole host of uh, criminal defense advocacy society, First Nations Summit, Pivot Legal Services, setting out a host of concerns that uh, arise from the uh, concept of having uh, police asked to uh, stop people in these ways. Concerns about uh, whether there would be uh, bias in terms of how that was done. Would the police be collecting information on people? Would they be conducting searches in the police computer system uh, for people? What all's going on here? Um, and some of those constitutional problems that I've alluded to, uh, because it would seem on what's described that there just isn't authority to do what they are proposing. And so they haven't announced the specifics of this yet. Hopefully somebody's reading the letter, listening to CFACs or getting some good legal advice, mm-hmm. because there is a route to accomplish what they want to accomplish uh, without putting people's health in jeopardy, police and others. Uh, and without uh, engaging in conduct uh, that would, uh, on the face of it, appear to be uh, unlawful and not permitted. All right. Well, Michael, you uh, convinced me. Hey, folks, if the Premier is out there listening, do what Michael says instead of the police thing. It wouldn't work. Um, anything else on this topic? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, they, they sort of the, the concept doesn't seem like uh, an unreasonable one, right? Uh, you know, you've got uh, regions of the province where there's much higher uh, rates of infection, yes, right than others, right. We, we're very lucky on Vancouver Island here to have a much lower rate of infection than there is in uh, Surrey, for example. And so, it's certainly not an unreasonable concept that hey, maybe we shouldn't have people moving between uh, health uh, regions where there are vast differences in terms of the, the rate of infection, uh, because that uh, simply risks uh, spreading. Uh, infection to places where there's a, a low level of that. Yeah. Uh, and in particular here, there's uh, it's reasonably easily done uh, where you have an island, right? We're yeah. sort of a, a miniature version of uh, New Zealand or something like that. Uh, but we don't need to militarize the ferries. We don't need to engage the police force. What's required here is a, a, a health approach. Uh, and, you know, I, I think I can understand the um, frustration. And really what you're seeing, I think, uh, from the Premier and others is sort of this expression of uh, exasperation and frustration. Sort of, yes. Oh, my God, we've got the hospitals overflowing. Yeah, what do we do? You know, yeah. you've got reports. What do we do? Right. So it's it's understandable why the, the first reaction, I think, uh, was the one that we uh, heard about earlier this week. Sort of, look, we're going to stop this and we're going to use the police and we're going to be tough. So I get that. Uh, But I I think the uh, legitimate objective just requires a little bit of sober uh, second thought in terms of how we carry it out. Um, If we're not uh, uh, deliberative about how we do that, you're going to wind up with a combination of things like people's 
uh, health being put in jeopardy. You may have trouble prosecuting anyone for it. You may have the police simply say, no, we're not doing that. That would obviously not uh, accomplish any objective. And so they should use the sections and powers that are there in the Public Health Act and uh, and do that properly and, and will accomplish what we want to do. Uh, lawfully uh, and in a way that will also, I think, ameliorate uh, many of the concerns which were expressed by uh, all of these First Nations groups and the Civil Liberties Society and so on. Um, those are legitimate, real uh, concerns. And so if you approach it in the way that I've suggested, you would um, alleviate those concerns if you had public health nurses or nurses or somebody else uh, making those uh, inquiries under the uh, Health Act, you would alleviate the concerns, you'd be doing it lawfully, uh, and you'd accomplish what you wanted to uh, accomplish. You just uh, uh, might need to uh, uh, do it in a way that doesn't sound quite as uh, forceful uh, when you're announcing it, you know, announcing that nurses are going to be checking on uh, people before they're permitted to get on the ferry sounds a little less uh, you know, uh, perhaps uh, macho than uh, police roadblocks are going to go up. Uh, But uh, I think that's the approach we we really need to take here. I like it, actually. The more I think about it, the more I like it. You know why? It would take a while for the nurse to check each person. That in and of itself would be a natural deterrent for the ferries being overloaded. Anybody doing that would presumably be on the clock for some other employer's time, i.e. you wouldn't want to spend so much of your leisure time going through all of that hassle. That would also serve the purpose of simply stopping or at least slowing down the transmission of COVID-19 while we get as many people vaccinated as as possible. I, I like the idea, Michael. I really do. Yeah. And if you did it, for example, like if you implemented that by saying, look, we're going to do it for everyone who's mm-hmm. in the parking lot waiting to get on the ferry. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have the nurse go along and ask people in their car, hi, may I ask where you're going and where you're coming from? And may I see your driver's license even? That would yep. be permitted here. Mm-hmm. Um, you would also alleviate any concern that there would be racial profiling or people be stopped for some other purpose. Uh, and it would uh, indeed be focused on exactly what we want to focus on here, which is keeping everyone healthy and avoiding the hospitals getting overloaded. Yeah, no, I like it. I hope they do that, Michael. We'll see. Uh, let's take our first break. Is that, does that work for you? Perfect. That works for me. All right. We'll take a quick break. Legally Speaking continues in just a moment. Back to Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. The next story, a person arrested for allegedly breaching the Quarantine Act following his attendance to the United States of America for a purpose that sounds like it's something out of a sitcom to my ear, Michael. Indeed. Uh, So this fellow, uh, whose uh, given name was uh, uh, Markin Parhar, but goes by I colon man colon Mac of the Parhar family, uh, had uh, traveled to the United States to attend a flat earth conference Uh. uh, and then, then returned to Canada uh, and refused to quarantine, uh, and so was arrested on a total of three occasions, October 31st, November 1st, and November 2nd uh, of 2020, uh, and uh, spent a total of four days in jail uh, before being released on the charges of breaching the uh, Quarantine Act. Uh, and uh, that fellow on those charges is still awaiting trial. That's coming up this summer, so we'll see what the eventual sentence is for uh, the breaching of the Quarantine Act, assuming he's convicted uh, of that. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he decided that uh, he would uh, sue uh, a whole manner of uh, people involved with that, including the Premier, the Health Minister, uh, the Attorney General, uh, uh, Crown Council, <laughs> uh, and uh, so filed a civil claim, uh, but uh, wrote on the form which would ordinarily start the civil claim, quote, I use this form only for the ease of court clerk filing purposes. 
uh, and then showed up in court uh, and uh, claimed to be the prosecutor, a self-appointed prosecutor in the Parhar court, uh, and claimed to have some uh, authority to prosecute all of these various people. Uh, that didn't get him too far. And so the, the just, <laughs> I can't imagine it did. No. Uh, he seemed to have this theory that you needed to uh, agree to be bound by the Quarantine Act. And if you didn't agree to be bound by the Quarantine Act, somehow that act didn't apply to you. Uh, the, the judge, and I must say, he seemed extremely patient uh, with this fellow, uh, indicated that to this, he said, I'm not without sympathy for the plaintiff. He spent four days in jail, eventually the result, evidently the result of alleged breaches of the Quarantine Act, and it appeared this occurred because someone convinced him, or he convinced himself, that statute law does not apply to him. It is a hard way to learn that laws do not work on an opt-in basis. <laughs> and so, uh, indeed... Uh, the fellow originally referred to Mr. Parhar uh, discovered that you can't simply uh, uh, avoid uh, a law by declaring yourself to not have that name uh, and not have opted into it. And so uh, the Attorney General and others were successful in their application to have this uh, claim uh, struck out. Uh, and so the uh, Premier uh, and others won't need to uh, defend themselves on the uh, uh, in the uh, common law court of Parhar uh, against uh, holding this fellow in jail for four days uh, after he came back from the Flat Earth Society uh, conference in the United States. So can, there it is. You can't just opt out. I could just imagine the amount of restraint that needs to be exercised by members of the judiciary from time to time when presented with these arguments. Like You can't say, get a load of this idiot. So you have to, you know, of course, maintain courtroom decorum, treat them with respect as they argue that you are actually subject to the court of Parhar and not the other way around. Um, yeah, that, that must take a great deal of self-control, I'd imagine. You know, and to some extent, I've got to say, when you read these decisions, the decision goes on for 12 pages. Uh, you know, we are lucky to live in a place where that is so. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a reasoned 12-page decision setting out what this person's arguments were, what he had done, the background of it. The judge goes on to carefully analyze it, look at the legal test, consider the application. Judge heard from both him and some other person who... Uh, he permitted to uh, make submissions on his behalf, who he described as a colleague that wished to make a few remarks but emphasized that he did not act for the plaintiff. He <laughs> yielded the floor to that person. For some so, reason. The, the judge, you know, obviously gave this person every opportunity to explain what he was doing, right? You've got this third-party independent judge, listened to everything this man had to say, made a decision. Uh, and here it is for all of us to read. Uh, I must say, to some extent, that's, uh, I think, great. Yeah. Um, you know, the, obviously there's a substantial amount of delusion going on there. Hmm. Uh, but to have it dealt with in that sort of open, reasoned way that's carefully explained for everyone to look at uh, is, I think, pretty fantastic. Uh, you know, there are not many places in the world where that would happen. Uh, you would be sort of dragged on under your heels <laughs> in most places here. You know, judge, listen to the guy, let him have uh, have a say, and then describe why you just can't opt out of the law. Uh, and so uh, to that extent, I think it's uh, it's pretty good. We have, let's see, two and a half minutes remaining. And I do see a, a story here with respect to COVID resulting in much greater use of online hearings for small claims cases. Yeah, I think that's an important thing for people to know about. So uh, in British Columbia, we've now got this civil resolution tribunal for very tiny claims, like up to $5,000.
But if you're suing somebody for $5,001 up to $35,000, that would occur in small claims court with a provincial court judge. Uh, And there are various steps in that process, including things that are called like a, a settlement conference where a judge would try to get the parties together and talk to them and hear each side and try to uh, come to a uh, agreement to resolve it, or there could be other things like an application of some kind. Uh, and what they've done as a result of COVID, and I think this will have just good general application, even when hopefully COVID is done, uh, they have uh, now changed the rules so that by default, many of those steps would occur by uh, telephone or a video conference, MS Teams or something of that sort. And so that will permit people to Uh, take many of those steps like the settlement conference or some application with respect to a case and do that, you know, from home or from some other uh, place without having to go to the courthouse. Uh, And uh, it uh, does have by default, a trial would occur in person, but with all these things, a judge would have discretion to change the default, that being, you know, for example, that a settlement conference would be by telephone or video uh, and to order them either to be in person or the other way around. And so, I think that's a good advancement. It'll make it uh, easier for people to uh, access small claims court. uh, And uh, in addition, in the times of COVID, also ultimately uh, keeps everyone safe. So I think that's worth knowing about. Um, And there have been some good changes there that have flowed from uh, uh, what we've been dealing with now for more than a year. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. I do love these segments every week. I learn something new about the way our legal system works every single week, and I'm sure our audience does as well. So thank you, as always, for your time. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be here. I always enjoy it. All right. Bye now.